Hey, good morning. You know, for those of you that are just visiting us or are new here, my name's Steve, and I'm one of the pastors um, here at Creekside. And as a church, we've been studying through John, the book of John. Um, it's, it's one of the firsthand accounts of Jesus' life written by John the Apostle. And um, this morning, we are going to be in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And as I say that, two things, I feel really loud. Am I loud? I don't like hearing myself, like bouncing off the wall, so I'm sorry for all of you that have to listen to me, you know. Aaron and I just, uh, we were working on, like, getting ready for the podcast that we want to do, and he and I were testing out the microphones. They're two different brands of microphones, and when we played it back, like, my voice sounded really bad, and so we switched microphones, trying to make it, thinking it was the microphones. It wasn't the microphones. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so I apologize, but... Um, you know, this morning we are, uh, it's going to be a little bit different sermon this week than normal. If you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 8, because, because um, there's something I want to point out in the Bible, uh, first of all, and point out about your Bibles as we get into our text this morning, and that's why our sermon's going to be a little bit different. If you look in John chapter 7, verse 53, or some of your Bibles actually start with chapter 8 instead of verse 1, it says 8 and then 53. Do you guys see that? And that right before verse 53 and right after verse, actually it doesn't have it on mine after verse 11, but it should be after verse 11, you'll see brackets. Do you guys see those brackets? The reason why those brackets are there is because this story that we're going to be looking at this morning in John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 is not in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts that we have of the scriptures. It's interesting. Right, And so our, our Bible translators like identify that to us by putting the story in those brackets. You know, and as I've been like kind of wrestling in my mind and trying to wrestle through like what to do with this text, you know, the, what the scholars pretty much like have come to the conclusion of as, as they looked at all of the evidence is that this is a genuine story from the life of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't belong right here in the Gospel of John is what the scholars kind of, like most of them anyway, shake out at. And, and that really shouldn't surprise us, because we just sang about it, that if the, if the whole, like, if we drained the ocean dry of ink, you know, and we wrote it on this scroll that went from side to sky to, like, end of the sky to the end of the sky, or whatever we sang. Um, it was an old song, you know, like, uh, we wouldn't be able to write the love of God. In fact, John says that in John chapter 21, verse 25. And, and uh, there's a couple different places, but he says it here. He says, and there are also many things which Jesus did. And if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. What John tells us, and that's at the very end of the book. What John tells us is like, and this is just a, a, a small sampling of what Jesus did to demonstrate his love for humanity. And if you were to write everything down, like the whole world wouldn't contain the books of what Jesus did. Earlier in John chapter 20, he said something similar. He said, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the reality is, and John acknowledges it here, is that there is a lot of other things that he didn't record in this book that Jesus did. And you can see, and I don't have this verse written down, but from the beginning of Luke, Luke even talks about that, that there was all of these accounts of Jesus' life that were kind of floating around. 
Um, and he took, like, he went and researched everything and kind of dialed in, like, the, the message that the Spirit inspired him to write in the Gospel of Luke. That's in Luke 1 to 4. You can, you can read about that. All that to say is that in the, in the first centuries after Jesus came and died and was buried and resurrected and ascended to heaven, like, people were recording these things that he had done. And this is one of those stories that, that shows up in different places, depending on which manuscripts you look at it. Like one source told, told, said that sometimes it's found here, sometimes it's found at the end of the Gospel of John, sometimes it's found even in the book of Luke, this story. And this is that story of the woman that was caught in adultery. It's appeared at different places in the scriptures because it was, again, like the scholars would assume that, or would kind of reach the conclusion based on its internal evidence, some of the other ancient textual evidence, that this is a genuine story, but it's just out of place in this part of the Bible. Now, in me saying that, a lot of you guys probably have a ton of questions in your mind. Any questions in your mind? Everybody's satisfied already? Like, I, <laughs> I wouldn't be satisfied if I was you yet, so... Uh, like, you, you should have a ton of questions in your mind. Like, what, really? Like, I thought we had, like, the actual, like, documents. And, like, how is it that there's some documents that are different? And, like, like, can we even believe anything that this book says? Is that question in anybody's mind? I don't have to waste, like, the whole first part of my sermon if <laughs> you guys are all dialed. Okay, I've got one, right? So, two, good. So we have this struggle of, like, how do we have confidence in this book in which we hold in our hands when there are some passages like this one, the longest two that I'm aware of anyway, are here um, in John 8, verses 1 through 11, and there's a section that's a longer section at the end of the book of Mark, and all the other ones are just really, really minor ones. But there's these two sections anyway where they're disputed. Like, were they really in John's mind when he wrote the Gospel of John or not? And so, so we have to ask ourselves the question, can we rely on everything else that's written down or not? Now, it's, a, it's a valid question. It's a question that if you're talking to people that are skeptical, it's a question they should be asking. And what I want to tell you this morning is that I want to give the first part of my sermon here to just like helping us understand why we can trust the Bible and why we can trust what we hold in our hands. The first reason is the brackets themselves. The fact that there's brackets there. Is a, is, a, is a reflection of multiple things. It's a reflection of like diligent, diligent, diligent study by people that look at what's called, um, I wrote this down, like the biblio, bibliographic evidence of the scriptures. It's a result of like integrity in their scholarship and it's a result of some transparency. Like, oh yeah, this verse, these verses are disputed. But the reality is this, as you look at the biblical text, um, it's like 95.5% like the secure. Like there's a really, really, really insignificant portion of the biblical text that has any sort of disagreement at all. It's a half of one percentage point. And, and like none of the places that are disputed, and we're going to see this, Lord willing, as, if, as we get into the text later on, none of the places that are disputed actually change any of the like doctrines of Christianity at all. And in fact, passages, and like this is one example, continue just to reinforce it, the truth of the scriptures. You know, but not only is it, is it just the, the, that bibliographic study is a really interesting study because the, the textual evidence for the accuracy of the Bible is like so overwhelming, it's not even funny. Um, I've, got some, I've got some evidence here. Uh, and I think you can, uh, let me see where I'm at in my notes. 
Yeah, you can, you can, see, this, you can see this scripture. I mean, this, this chart. The chart has a whole bunch of ancient works um, on, on the left, like Tacitus's Annals, Herodotus' History, you know, Sophocles' Plays. And what, what it tells us is when is the earliest manuscript? What that means is how far removed it from the writing is the first copy that we have. And so, for example, like the, the best one, Homer's Iliad is the, is the very best kind of like besides the Bible, ancient documents. The very last one on the list before it says New Testament in big letters. Homer's Iliad was written in 415 BC. The gap of time before the first copy that we have is 400 years. And there's like 1,900 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad that we have in our hand. But if you look just down below at the New Testament, the New Testament has... Um, 5,856 Greek manuscripts, just Greek. So it has like three times the amount that, that Homer's Iliad has. Um, and, and if you look at all the other languages, from the very beginning, the Christian ch- church has had a, this great history of Bible translation. If you look at all the ancient translations we have, that number goes from almost 6,000 to 24,000 ancient copies of the Bible. And the oldest copy we have is, is the John Ryland Papyrus. It's called, uh, if you're a scholar, it's the P52 Papyrus. And it's a portion of the Gospel of John where, dial, where it records Jesus' dialogue with Pontius Pilate. And it was written, the copy has been dated at 125 AD. The Apostle John died somewhere between 95 and 99 AD. So it was written within... 25 to 30 years, depending on how you do your math and exactly, you know, this is, a little, this is a little bit of like slush in these numbers, right? It's written within 30 years of John's death. Like John likely saw the copy. And, and if you look at the, if you look at just the, and the people that study these, like go back and out of those 24,000 like ancient copies of the text, like our, our, our text is 95.5% without any dispute, 99.5%. Thank you. What did I say? 95? Yeah, no. Um, 99.5% without any dispute. And so what that means is that, yeah, we can with integrity say like, oh yeah, we're not sure about this section of text. But it changes nothing. Because what we do have is so overwhelmingly confirmed in the, in the eyes of even secular scholars that no one would dispute that what we have is what was written if they if they honestly look at the evidence you know not only do we have that like kind of external textual evidence but you have this internal evidence in the bible that that where it shows like um and and i talked about this in our new members class but the internal evidence of the bible is really really amazing and the more i study the bible the more i'm convinced that it's god's word because of how like unified this book is you know if you think about it it was written over a period of 1500 years um moses recording uh uh, the first five books of the Bible for us, and John recording the last one, the book of Revelation. It's a span of about 1,500 years. It was over 40 different authors. Um, they were from three different continents. They were from every walk of life, ranging from like fishermen to scholars to kings. And the entire Bible is a single unified story with a centralized message that, that is clear and without like dispute as you study it. And if you think about that, like, just the reality of what it takes to see that internal evidence of the scriptures. Like if eight of you get together and you're like, hey, let's pick a place where we all want to go to lunch. (laughs) 
And here's people over 1,500 years from every walk of life telling the same story that all perfectly fits together. It's, it's, it's an amazing reality. In addition to that, not only is there this bibliographic evidence, not only is the internal evidence, but the church fathers. The church fathers are those people that immediately like, succeeded the apostles. So like when John died, his disciples, and we're going to see two of them mentioned in just a second, Polycarp. You don't need to pull up. Yeah, whatever. Um, the church fathers, like in their writings, we have their writings as well. They existed in those first 300 years of the life of the church. Um, and, and these numbers, it's a little bit hard to tell because of the way they quote things, but you can reconstruct almost the entire New Testament out of the writings of the church fathers. And in fact, here's a sampling of four of them. Um, the first one is Ignatius. In 110, so this was, this is again, uh, what is that? What's the math on that? 15 years after the death of the Apostle John. He refers to six of Paul's epistles in the year 110. Um, Polycarp and Irenaeus, they were both disciples of John. So they knew the apostle John personally. Um, Polycarp quoted all four gospels, the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians by 160. And so, and in, in, who's the other guy I mentioned? Oh, Irenaeus, he quoted Matthew, John, Acts, and 1 Corinthians. I have the wrong date. Do I, do I not have Irenaeus on there? Huh. That's a bummer. Maybe it's Ignatius and Polycarp that were the, that were the disciples of John. I know it was the, what, an I word. But they, early on, they're referring to, they're referring to uh, the scriptures. Tatian, I think is how you pronounce his name. In 160, he wrote a harmony of the Gospels. In 160. So he, he had access to all four of the Gospels. And then he wrote like this paraphrased harmony where he took all the stories and wove them together. I thought that was just a modern thing. But Tatian did it in 160. So, so what you see is like early, early, early in the life of the church and from the writings of the church fathers, you can reconstruct. Some people say it's all but 12 verses of the New Testament from the writings of the church fathers. But again, those numbers are disputed. But I'll just say you can reconstruct almost all of the New Testament from the writings of these guys as they're quoting the scripture as scripture. So we have this like, and there is no other ancient work that even comes close. Like I said, Homer is the closest one. Like, um, Plato, like, you know, the philosopher Plato, not the dough, you know. Um, <laughs> this is Creekside, I gotta be clear. They're like, <laughs> he was this Greek philosopher, yeah. Uh, we have seven copies of his, of his writings. The closest one is separated by 1,200 years from when it was written. But when you look at these 24,000 copies, like the 6,000 Greek ones and the rest of the ones that are in other languages, like, they all say the same thing. Like, we can have confidence in the pages of Scripture. And in, and in a situation like this one where, again, like, based on the internal evidence of the language of the text and, and the, the knowledge that's in the text and the early citations of these things, scholars would say that this is a story, but it's just inserted in here out of place by some scribe later on because everything was hand-copied, you know, back then. And so, and so some scribe was like, man, this is a great story. we got to work this in somewhere, Right? And he put it in there, and unfortunately, and it, it ended up in our English Bibles here because when the King James was translated, um, the, the closest text they had to the original was uh, 900 years removed. Um, and so the, the text that they were accessing were downstream of where the scribe put this in. Um, but again, the integrity, there's no cover-up. There's no, like, we're not trying to hide anything. 
but the scriptures are reliable and we can trust them um, because and because none of those disputed areas even affect any of the teaching of the church and not only the and the, the church fathers who immediately followed there not only in their quotations do they do they testify to the truth of the scriptures but they they testify to the truth of the content of the scriptures as well like they tell the same story even if they're not directly quoting it so if you want more information on that i can get you more information but I just wanted to start there, letting us know that, hey, we can still trust the Bible, even though there are these areas where in scholars, out of all those 24,000, like there are some discrepancies. Um, and then we should jump into the text. So my email, like steve at creeksidemac.com. Um, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or want me to drum up some more information and send it your way. Um, but but the, the accusation against the scriptures that it's full of corruptions and it's full of... That, that, like, we, we excluded books, like, out of it, which all the excluded books that people talk about are written hundreds of years after Christ came. Simply not true. Like, the evidence simply does not support that. And so we can have, again, confidence in the pages of Scripture, internal evidence, the, the bibliographic evidence, the writings of the church fathers. It all points to the same truth. So I hope that was helpful. Some of the looks in your faces are like, man, I'm more confused now than I was before. <laughs> So I hope that's not true. Maybe some of you are just stuck in the whole Plato thing. Um, I don't know. One time I did that. I saw I was preaching, and there was this guy mad-dogging me during the sermon. And I was like, man, what did I say? And then I went and talked to him afterwards. I'm like, hey, like, did I say something to offend you? And he's like, and he couldn't even remember what I was talking about. And then he said, you know, I think I was wondering if I left my coffee pot on at home. <laughs> So maybe I'm misinterpreting the thing, but feel free to write me if you have any questions about that. But what I want to do is I want to I talk about the text because this is a beautiful text that shows Jesus' like, heart for, for people. And it shows like, the, how the gospel like, transforms everything in our interactions with each other. And it's, it's a beloved story. And I can understand why some scribe would want to make sure it got, got in there somewhere. And so why don't you stand with me? I'm going to go ahead and read. Um, John chapter 8, starting at verse 1, and I think I'll just stop at verse 6, um, and uh, then I'll pray and we'll get into the text. It says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in, in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And and they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for preserving it for us. I thank you for the scholars that diligently study it and and do the hard work of making sure what we have is accurate and um, Father, I just ask that you would transform us from, from the time that we spend this morning as we reflect on the beauty of your son. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we get into our text, it really breaks out into, into three sections. I've entitled the sermon, I think the title had been thrown up there before, but uh, it's entrapment and mercy. Like the, the, we saw that, that the, the Pharisees were trying to tra- entrap Jesus, and our text is going to break out in three ways. That the trap is laid in verses 1 through 6, the tables turn in verses 7 through 9. It's hard to out, out like smart Jesus. And then mercy is given in verses 10 and 11. And as we look at this story, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. You know, Jesus is in Jerusalem. 
He's teaching in the temple. And suddenly his teaching's interrupted because like the, the, the Pharisees and scribes, it says, and we've seen the Pharisees before. They're kind of like the long-term enemies of Jesus. They're the ones that are like nitpickers about every little detail of the law. They, they show up on the scene dragging with them, I'm sure she's not coming willingly, this woman who is caught in adultery. In fact, we read that she was caught in the very act of adultery. Like, think about this for a second. Like, this is horrible. This is this horrible scene that should just, like, make us cringe. Because as, as in, it, in the temple of God, as Jesus is teaching the people, these kind of religious, this religious party of, like, like nitpicking law guys drag this woman who's, I'm sure, weeping. I'm sure she's, like, just, like, overwhelmed with shame, right? She's dragged out of the house, dragged to the temple, like thrown in front of like this teacher of the day and all of these people. And then the Pharisees start talking about stoning her to death. And this is a like treacherous and horrible like moment for this woman. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. She's brought before Jesus and, and you can see the, the treachery of the Pharisees in it because, you know, as they stand smugly by, putting her out there and using her shame to try to, like, gain their position, you know, they ask the question, how does it read exactly? Verse 4, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, of, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? So here's this moment where, where they bring this woman there and, and they quote, there, there's actually a couple places in the law where they're right. Like the law does say you should stone the adulterers, right? It's Leviticus 20 verse 10 or something like that. It's really, really clear in the law. And they're trying to entrap Jesus. Now, let me just pause for a second. The fact that they're trying to entrap Jesus in this way tells us something about Jesus. Because they're assuming Jesus is going to do what? Jesus is going to demonstrate mercy and grace and compassion to her. And that they'll be able to entrap him as a lawbreaker. So somehow Jesus the perfect keeper of the law, the one who is the perfect expression of the law, the one who inspired the law, keeps the law in a way that the Pharisees just can't understand. He keeps the law in a way where they're assuming that he's going to be like somehow showing her mercy. And they just don't, and they just don't get it. They just can't understand. For them, the law is this like tool to like judge people and convict people and elevate themselves and Jesus just handles it differently and they think they're going to entrap him you know there's all this you know and and if and the treachery is is also pretty clear and pretty evident even before John tells us about it because I think it was the same in Jesus day as it is today but to commit adultery which means that you're sleeping with someone besides your husband in her case takes two right like, I think that happened back then the same way it happens today. <laughs> Jesus was a single guy. Maybe they thought they could pull that over on him. But it takes two, and yet, standing before Jesus, when these 
this man and this woman were caught in the middle of this act of adultery. They only brought one. Now that raises like a ton of questions that John doesn't indulge for us. But it does give us the hint like, oh, not everything is as it appears. Right? This isn't like an, an honest inquiry into the law. This isn't an honest like trying to figure out what to do with this woman. In fact, if we missed it from, from like that hint, John tells us this in verse 6. And they were saying this, testing him in order that they may have grounds for accusing him. This whole thing is just a setup and treachery. And they're using this woman's shame to try to entrap Jesus so that they can secure their position in the eyes of the people. It's a terrible thing. Now, before we move on into the, to the, to the rest of it, I, I want to like focus on their accusation a little bit because their, their use of the scriptures, the Pharisees' use of the scriptures is, is often how like, opponents to like, the cause of Christ and opponents of the scriptures use the scriptures today. Because it's a really like tense situation where you've got this woman who's like in like shame and grief and the law is like crushing down upon her and and the law says in Leviticus 20 that you should like, that you should stone her. And and they're trying to entrap Jesus thinking like oh Jesus is full of grace and he's full of mercy and so we're going to stick him with this law that is not grace and mercy. I hear this accusation all the time. Like in stuff I read in conversations. Like, how can you believe the Bible because the Bible has things like Leviticus 20 in it? Right? Are we really supposed to stone adulterers? Anybody ever hear an argument like that? Or you teach grace and mercy and forgiveness, and yet the law says to, to condemn this person to death. You're a hypocrite. Right? You guys hear those accusations? That's the same bind that they're trying to put Jesus in. Here's, this, here's Jesus, this guy that demonstrates grace and mercy and this heart, the heart of God and love for all people. We've got him trapped now because the law contradicts that. Now, let me just, I, I, this is going to be like a little another detour here, kind of educationally. Th- those questions arise out of, a, out of like a, a deficient view of the law in the Old Testament. The law in the Old Testament really breaks out in three kinds of ways. The first, the first type of law that we have is, is the moral law. The moral law was given to, like, Adam and Eve from the very beginning. It, it reflects God's heart, like, God's character, and it reflects his heart for humanity and, and what he's created for humanity to flourish. And because of that, because it's a reflection of his character and what it is for humanity to flourish, um, it is binding for all people and all times. And it's kind of it's best encapsulated in, like, the Ten Commandments. Right? You have the Ten Commandments, and the first four of those like, tell us about our duty towards, towards God himself. The last six talk about our duty towards other people. That's the moral law of God, which is binding upon all peoples at all times. There's a second kind of law in the Old Testament. It's the ceremonial law. It's, uh, you know, it's when you begin to read through some of the scriptures, and you're like, man, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And then you get into this thing, and you're like, man, how many times do I have to hear about, like, like this incense and that bull and this cow and killing this thing and doing, like, anybody ever gotten bogged down there, right? Like, really? Well, there's the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law, all of those sacrifices, all of those things were meant to point us to Jesus. The moral law 
reveals to us our need for Jesus. The ceremonial law in the Old Testament would point us to Jesus, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's the one that satisfies the Lord. He's the, he's the temple of God where, where God dwells. He's the, I mean, we've seen that even in John where Jesus teaches, or yeah, Jesus teaches us those things. There's the moral law. There's the ceremonial law. And then this law that the Pharisees are trying to apply here is the judicial law. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was a, a nation state. And as a nation state, it had laws that governed like justice and all of those things that any nation needs to have to, to, to uh, provide for like safety and like flourishing of people within it. Like you need laws to, for society to function. And there are some laws in the Old Testament that are judicial laws and that at the end, at the, as the nation of Israel kind of ran its course and, and has come to an end, like in the don't don't read too much into that theologically but those laws applied to the the, the nation of Israel as a nation they were never meant to be a, a application of my my own moral responsibility they were national laws and as national laws there's all sorts of intricacies into those laws that you need to like focus on but but there's the judicial laws there's the ceremonial laws and then there's the moral laws Jesus continues to affirm the moral laws. We'll see later on in the sermon, the, like the, the New Testament affirms those moral laws even as they bring an end to those other two laws. Like now that Jesus has come, the ceremonial law doesn't matter. Now that the nation of Israel isn't like this nation state like it was in the Old Testament, um, those judicial laws don't affect, like don't come into play either. Now, as I'm saying that, I don't want you to think that this is some sort of like, like shell game um, to, uh, to like, like somehow weasel out of like the modern objection to the Bible, right? Like it could easily come across that way. But this has been the teaching of the church for hundreds of years. Um, probably the, and I didn't have time to research this all this week, but the Westminster Confession, which was in 1646, which was kind of defined like the whole Presbyterian sort of like uh, denomination. The Westminster Confession, chapter 19, is all about the law of God. And points one, two, three, and four, and I don't have them up there because it's written in 1646. I would have to spend way too much time explaining them. Points one and two speak about the moral law and how the moral law continues to be binding. Point three speaks about the ceremonial law and how the ceremonial law is meant to point us to Christ. Point number four um, speaks about the judicial law and how the judicial law governs the nation of Israel. Like, and they, they encapsulated it in the Westminster Confession because that had been the teaching of the church to, for, like way before it. These were the things that they could all agree on. All I have to say is that if, when you come to the Old Testament, and if people come to the Old Testament and just randomly bring laws out and, and, and take the moral law and, and expect it to have, or take the judicial law, for example, and expect it to have the same authority that the moral law has, they're misusing the scriptures because the judicial law was meant for the people of Israel as a nation state. It wasn't meant to like function for us like the moral law does. So there, there's those three breakdowns. If you want to read more, like the Westminster Confession, there's different versions of it. There's like the original versions, which are like 1646 language. Don't read that one. Um, it's confusing. Unless you're like a King James guy, then you're well in line. Um, but there's modern versions, like the Christian Reformed Church. They, they have a modern version of it, I think, on their website. I think so. Or Westminster Seminary, I think, has a modern version of it with the language updated. But it lays out those three uses of laws and also has scriptures that go along with them. But the Pharisees here 
are trying to entrap Jesus using this judicial law and putting him in this moral quandary of what are we going to do with this woman who we caught in adultery. And what Jesus shows us is that he's the master of the law. You can't outsmart the guy who, who wrote it and who modeled it. And he turns the tables on him. This is our second point this morning. The tables turn, starting at verse 7. Well, so in verse, sorry, in verse 6. So what he does is after he, yeah, I never even finished it. Yeah, verse 5. What then do you say? And, and they were saying this, testing him. But what Jesus does is he just ignores them. He bends down and starts writing with his finger on the ground. And he's just ignoring them. He's like, I'm not going to take your bait. Like, whatever. They think they probably have him on the ropes, right? Verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the midst. So what Jesus does is really interesting, and it's easy to miss, but uh, in verse 7, when he says that he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. Like, he knows their treachery. And he actually quotes from the law himself. The law required in capital offenses that the witnesses against the, against the, the person would be the first to throw a stone. I have this on here. It's, it's in Deuteronomy 17.7. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. It's actually a pretty great law. Like if, if you're going to testify against someone on a capital offense, you're going to have to be the one that helps execute the judgment. In fact, you're going to be the primary one to execute the judgment on them. So what Jesus does is he says, you know what, let me, let me know who the witnesses are. The ones that are supposed to be the first stone, throw the first stone. And if you're without sin, like if, you're, if, you're, if your motives in this whole situation with this woman are completely clean, if, if you weren't like setting her up, if, you were, if, if your heart towards, this, towards her and towards this whole situation is in the right place, yeah, go ahead, pick up a stone. And then he bends down and starts writing again. I don't know what the woman thinks at this point in time, like, right? What Jesus is doing is he's calling out the witnesses, you people who only brought me one, where are you? And they feel the gravitas. They feel the gravity of that, that like, oh, maybe my motives aren't so pure. Maybe I was just being treacherous. Maybe I was like misapplying the law and twisting it around for my own gain. And what do we see happen, beginning with the oldest ones who, there is something good about age is it helps you be a little bit like more realistic about who yourself is, about yourself. They begin to like file out one by one until it's just Jesus and the woman, which is really, really interesting to me. It wasn't just the Pharisees that filed out. It was everybody. Like he cleared out the room. I mean, the people that were just there because they were at church and they wanted to like hear Jesus teach. All of them left. You know, it says something about, like, like the state of our own heart. What Jesus is saying, like, you better be careful before you pronounce, pronounce like, judgment upon somebody. That your, your desires and your motives and your heart towards them are in the right place. Maybe the crowd, like, think about this, this. This is the perfect clickbait thing that would be all over the Internet. 
woman caught in adultery, Jesus entrapped, right? Like, in the very act, it's sensationalized, it's everything that you would think. And so the crowd was probably like waiting for this, right? And the, and the conviction fell upon the Pharisees, it fell upon the crowd, and eventually Jesus is left alone with this woman. You know, in his statement, like, let him who is without sin throw the first stone, he's not saying that you can never call sin, sin. He's not saying that you never have to stand up for what's true and even rebuke people who are, like, going down the wrong way. But what he is saying is that when we do it, like, we need to make sure our motives and our hearts are in the right place. In fact, Zechariah, the Pharisees should have read ahead to Zechariah. Zechariah 7, verse 9 says this, Thus says the Lord, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice. Like God is a God of justice. Like, and, and he's the one that can exp- dispense true justice. Our justice is always like tainted. But he says dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion. Like the, the, way, the, the way we're to use the law, like, Jesus, like Zachariah is saying, and what Jesus modeled for us is, is this way that's controlled by kindness and compassion. The Pharisees, it was all about treachery and position. Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. If you want to use the law, don't use it to like further your end to devise evil against another. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They lacked compassion. They lacked um, kindness. They They had distorted justice. And they devised evil plans against Jesus and this woman. Scriptures would tell us, like, no, dispense true justice, practice kindness and compassion. You know, as God's people, we need to be the same way. Like, yeah, there's right, there's wrong, there's sin. But is our heart, like, directed by kindness and compassion towards the person that that we're thinking of? Or is it, like, judgment and condemnation? The gospel would compel us to be, like, people of kindness and compassion that, that point us to Jesus. That was the purpose of the moral law, was to expose our need for Jesus and bring us to him. And if we just use the moral law to, like, beat people down, like, we're no different than the Pharisees. Practice kindness and compassion. So after the room clears out, we see Jesus give mercy to her in verses 10 and 11. It says, in straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. And it is such a beautiful, this is such a beautiful scene if you think about it. This, ironically, this woman who was brought like in condemnation and shame before Jesus, like overwhelming shame. Can, can anything get more shameful than that? Probably not. Probably, but I don't know. Pretty bad though overwhelming shame upon her. And at Jesus' words, the room, the, the, the voices of her condemners like clear out. And he says, like, where'd they go? He says, neither do I condemn you. Like there's this huge reversal of the, 
of her shame, where her shame and her condemnation is taken away by Jesus. And ironically, the safest place for her to be brought by the Pharisees was before Jesus. As she was dragged there in her shame and in her condemnation, because Jesus is one who is compassionate and practices kindness and dispenses true justice and bore that justice on himself so he could set her free. In fact, Jesus is doing here exactly what he said to Nicodemus, who was a ruler, like a religious leader of the Jews back in John chapter 3. This first verse might be familiar to to you. John 3, 16. Are you guys familiar with that one? Can I ask, is there like, does everybody know John 3, 16 still? Like, it feels like that used to be the thing. Anybody? How do I ask this question? (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) It's a little... Random Steve moment, just forgive me for that. But For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Next verse, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says, like, what, what Jesus is saying is that his whole mission in the world is not to bring condemnation and judgment. It's to save people. But that doesn't mean there will never be condemnation and judgment coming, or else if there wasn't, there was nothing to be saved from. In fact, Jesus came into the world to do what? We've seen this over and over in John, to be lifted up for his hour to come where he would be crucified for the sins of humanity. He would bear all of God's disfavor upon him. He would bear all of the shame that all of the sin for all of humanity for all time incurred upon himself. He would die under the weight of that and he would be resurrected three days later. That's what Jesus came to do. So the son being sent in the world to not judge the world but to set them free doesn't do away with the sinfulness of sin. In fact, it elevates the sinfulness of sin. It says the only way that we could be saved is through God himself dying in our place. But it also like elevates like the grace and the compassion and the mercy that comes because it's whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus is modeling that, this to this woman. This woman is caught red-handed. She's caught in the very act And Jesus declares to her that he had the authority to judge, he had the authority to forgive, and he grants her mercy. He's picturing for her what he would do on the cross. That he would make it possible that our shame could be completely taken away. You know what that means for you? If you're just here and you're investigating who Jesus is or you don't even like Christianity and you're just here because someone made you come or whatever. Know this, that the weight of the stuff of this world, like the, the sin that lives within your heart, the, the, the sin that kind of just oppresses you from the outside, like all of those things that just bring shame and condemnation. And God doesn't want you to live in that. Like look what he says to the woman. Verse 11, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. Just be released from that. Leave like away and don't sin anymore. You can be set free. Let go. 
God doesn't want you to sit under the condemning weight of all of that stuff that you might struggle with. He wants to bring life and forgiveness and healing and grant you mercy. And he paid for that with the sacrifice of himself. What does it say? So whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. But Jesus is modeling something here to us as our Lord, too. The kind of people that we should be. We have this contrast between the mercy that Jesus shows and the condemnation that the Pharisees shows. And, and it, it's really compelling that as God's people, we need to live differently than, than the world around us. And to turn with me to James chapter 2. And I'm not going to put this up on the screen because I want you to go in your own Bibles. I want you to know where this is. I want you to feel it in your hands. I want you to see it. Do you have a phone, like phone over to it? James chapter 2, verse 8. James is speaking to us, and I should turn there myself. So I have it on the screen. Um, James chapter 2, verse 8. He's talking to the church, and he says this. He says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. He's telling you the church, and he says, there's two things. This is the royal law. This is the law that has come down to us from our king. And it's also recorded for us in the scriptures. In fact, when, when a scribe asked Jesus, like, hey, what's the greatest commandment? You know, Jesus asked the guy and confirmed what he said, like, oh, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, yeah, that wraps it all up. And James is telling the church, he's like, if you do that, you're doing pretty well. If you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That neighbor means that the people sitting in this room with you are your neighbors. But when Jesus was talking to like somebody, and he, it, to that guy, and he applied that on him, the guy, it actually says in the biblical text, uh, what is it, Luke chapter, I don't know, I should have had this, but I wasn't planning on going here. You can look it up later. The guy responds to Jesus and it says, and seeking to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? It's an interesting question. When this when those law from our king comes down to us, we our neighbor as himself, the guy immediately wants to know who he can exclude from that law. Right? Oh, like I understand that the Creekside folks are my neighbor, as difficult that is. But is my neighbor really my neighbor? Okay, you see the humor of that, right? Is those people I work with really my neighbor? Yeah. And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, the oppressed guy that, like, showed love to the guy that hated him. He's like, oh, yeah, you got to love your neighbor as yourself, regardless of their political views, regardless of their, like, sexual views, regardless of their religious views, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their, like, whatever else we all divide over, you should love them as yourself. Then he goes on. Let me skip down. Well, I'll skip this, but you can look at it there. He, he then talks about... Um, Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So what he's saying there is like, if you're going like, to like look down on other people as lawbreakers, just make sure you've never broken the law ever once in your, in your whole life. Because if you break it one time, you're guilty of the whole thing. Really? Yeah, if you've ever coveted something, when you just want something you didn't have. 
you're a lawbreaker. If you've ever lusted, nobody here struggles with that. Like, you're a lawbreaker. If you ever were disrespectful to your parents, you're a lawbreaker. Like, the law condemns. But then he goes on. That's what he says. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are be judged by the law of liberty. And the, that idea of the law of liberty is that the, the scripture set us free to like walk in that path that, that God has designed for us to flourish as people and, and to experience his life. Like the law is not, the moral law of God is not this oppressive thing. It's the guide to like what, like how we're supposed to live to experience the life God intended for us. And then he says this, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word actually means to like boast or to taunt. Like mercy taunts judgment. Like there's this idea that like our Christian ethic and what Jesus demonstrated to this woman is the Pharisees came in judgment. Jesus came in mercy and he triumphed and he won the day. And what James is telling us, as those who are going to be judged like by the law of liberty, the ones that were condemned and yet set free, we should show mercy to other people. We should be merciful because it's the unmerciful person that, that probably demonstrates that they've never received mercy. Or at least they don't understand the mercy that they received. Skip over to chapter 3, verse 13. Because this is, you know, you know, when you see Jesus outsmart the Pharisees in, in John 8, and you see him use the law to, like, bring, to bring conviction upon them and to, like, like release the woman from, from the condemnation that she was under. It's the wisdom of God. And as God's people, we're called to walk in that same wisdom. And listen to how James describes, like, wisdom from above. He's, he's translating wisdom from above, the kind of wisdom that comes from God, with wisdom from below, the kind of, like, wisdom that comes from, like, well, he, he calls it demonic, the pit of hell, and this earth himself. Look what he says, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Some of your translations read the meekness of wisdom. Like, first of all, like, wisdom from above is something that comes gently. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Isn't that where the Pharisees were? They knew the Bible. They were using the Bible, but they were motivated out of jealousy and ambition. This wisdom is not which comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in everything. Now listen, verse 17, these are the kind of people that we should be. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. You hear that? And how much does the world today need to see wisdom that's peaceable? That tries to cross the boundaries that we like, use to divide people. That tries to bring unity where there's division. Wisdom from above is pure. It's peaceable. It's, I lost my spot. It's gentle. It's reasonable. The word means literally to, to be like quickly persuaded by the evidence. Man, our, our culture needs to hear that today. Because how often do like we, we're just motivated and convinced by, the, by our outrage. 
Right? We, we feel deeply about something. Something's deeply wrong, so we're just going to outrage and we don't care about the facts. It's craziness. It's demonic is what the scriptures tell us. That, that, that comes from below. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then like reasonable, then gentle, full of mercy. Full of mercy. Which means if you get bumped, what spills out? Mercy. And good fruits, like the, the fruit of our lives as Christians, if we're walking in the footsteps of Jesus that he demonstrated to this woman, should be pure and peaceable and gentle and full of and reasonable and full of mercy and bear good fruit. Like the people that we impact with our speech and our wisdom in our life should be demonstrating like good fruit in their life. But if what we're like doing and what we're saying is like yielding bad fruit, like we should feel some conviction about that. And then he says, and the seed who's, oh yeah, it's, it's unwavering. Like you stay, you stay with it even when it's difficult. It's without hypocrisy. Verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Like our goal as Christians and, the, and what we do and what we say and how we be, conduct ourselves should be to like see people like be at peace ultimately with God. But we should be agents of peace with each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. These are all things Jesus tells us over and over and over again. And yet in our age today, and it's not our age's fault. Let me just be clear about this. The reason why James is talking about this in James chapter 3, 4, 3, where am I, 3, is because it was a problem, right? He's not just making up stuff to talk about. He's addressing real-life problems. The problem isn't everything outside of us. The problem is those things that live within us. We have, like, this desire for, like, the deeds of the flesh are anger, wrath, malice, slander, gossip. I can't remember the rest. And things like these, Paul says. It's not an exhaustive list. That lives within us, and in the, until we allow the like, work of the gospel and spirit of God to transform our heart and mind, like we just continue to be stuck in those things. And our culture today with the polarization and all the stuff that comes up, it just lets what's in us run free. It's not the problem. It just allows it to be seen for what it is. But God's wisdom, what he calls us to as his people is, First, pure and peaceable and gentle and full of mercy, reasonable, I think, full of mercy, good fruits and unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Marv, why don't you come up to close us? And But I, I just want to challenge us. Like, First of all, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, know that there is life and freedom in him. And to the degree that we as God's people have failed to demonstrate the same kind of mercy and grace and compassion and kindness that, that you saw him demonstrate to this woman, that you see him calling us to as his people. Like, forgive us for that. And, and look to Jesus. He's the only one that's going to perfectly model it for you. And for all of us who are here who are Christians, let me just challenge you. Like, put your put your mind to these things in James chapter 3. Like, embrace godly wisdom. 
Like, focus on Jesus and follow him because the law from our king is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That wisdom just encapsulates what that would look like. Because we just need to be different. And we should be different because of the mercy we received. So, Marv, why don't you close us, then I'll close us in prayer. Hey, good morning. morning. You know, for those of you that are just visiting us or are new here, my name's Steve, and I'm one of the pastors um, here at Creekside. And as a church, we've been studying through John, the book of John. Um, it's, it's one of the firsthand accounts of Jesus' life written by John the Apostle. And um, this morning, we are going to be in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And as I say that, two things, I feel really loud. Am I loud? I don't like hearing myself, like bouncing off the wall, so I'm sorry for all of you that have to listen to me, you know. Erin and I just, uh, we were working on, like, getting ready for the podcast that we want to do, and he and I were testing out the microphones. They're two different brands of microphones, and when we played it back, like, my voice sounded really bad, and so we switched microphones, trying to make it, thinking it was the microphones. It wasn't the microphones. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so I apologize, but... Um, you know, this morning we are, uh, it's going to be a little bit different sermon this week than normal. If you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 8, because, because um, there's something I want to point out in the Bible, uh, first of all, and point out about your Bibles as we get into our text this morning, and that's why our sermon's going to be a little bit different. If you look in John chapter 7, verse 53, or some of your Bibles actually start with chapter 8 instead of verse 1, it says 8 and then 53. Do you guys see that? And that right before verse 53 and right after verse, actually it doesn't have it on mine after verse 11, but it should be after verse 11, you'll see brackets. Do you guys see those brackets? The reason why those brackets are there is because this story that we're going to be looking at this morning in John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 is not in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts that we have of the scriptures. It's interesting. Right, And so our, our Bible translators like identify that to us by putting the story in those brackets. You know, and as I've been like, kind of wrestling in my mind and trying to wrestle through like, what to do with this text, you know, the, what the scholars pretty much like, have come to the conclusion of as, as they looked at all of the evidence is that this is a genuine story from the life of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't belong right here in the Gospel of John is what the scholars kind of, like most of them anyway, shake out at. And, and that really shouldn't surprise us, because we just sang about it, that if the, if the whole, like, if we drained the ocean dry of ink, you know, and we wrote it on this scroll that went from sky to sky, to, like, end of the sky to the end of the sky, or whatever we sang. Um, it was an old song, you know, like, a, we wouldn't be able to write the love of God. In fact, John says that in John chapter 21, verse 25. And, and uh, there's a couple different places, but he says it here. He says, and there are also many things which Jesus did. And if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. What John tells us, and that's at the very end of the book. What John tells us is like, and this is just a, a, a small sampling of what Jesus did to demonstrate his love for humanity. And if you were to write everything down, like the whole world wouldn't contain the books of what Jesus did. Earlier in John chapter 20, he said something similar. He said, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the reality is, and John acknowledges it here, is that there is a lot of other things that he didn't record in this book that Jesus did. And you can see, and I don't have this verse written down, but from the beginning of Luke, Luke even talks about that, that there was all of these accounts of Jesus' life that were kind of floating around. Um, and he took, like, he went and researched everything and kind of dialed in, like, the, the message that the Spirit inspired him to write in the Gospel of Luke. That's in Luke 1 to 4. You can, you can read about that. All that to say is that in the, in the first centuries after Jesus came and died and was buried and resurrected and ascended to heaven, like, people were recording these things that he had done. And this is one of those stories that, that shows up in different places, depending on which manuscripts you look at it. Like one source told, told, said that, Sometimes it's found here. Sometimes it's found at the end of the Gospel of John. Sometimes it's found even in the book of Luke, this story. And this is that story of the woman that was caught in adultery. It's appeared at different places in the scriptures because it was, again, like the scholars would assume that or would kind of reach the conclusion based on internal evidence, some of the other ancient textual evidence that this is a genuine story, but it's just out of place in this part of the Bible. Now, in me saying that, a lot of you guys probably have a ton of questions in your mind. Any questions in your mind? Everybody's satisfied already? Like, I, <laughs> I wouldn't be satisfied if I was you yet. So, uh, like, you, you should have a ton of questions in your mind. Like, what? Really? Like, I thought we had, like, the actual, like, documents. And, like, how is it that there's some documents that are different? And, like, like, can we even believe anything that this book says? Is that question in anybody's mind? I don't have to waste, like, the whole first part of my sermon if <laughs> you guys are all dialed. Okay, I've got one, right? So... Two, good. So we have this struggle of like, how do we have confidence in this book in which we hold in our hands when there are some passages like this one, the longest two that I'm aware of anyway, are here um, in John 8 verses 1 through 11. And there's a section that's a longer section at the end of the book of Mark. And all the other ones are just really, really minor ones. But there's these two sections anyway where they're disputed. Like, were they really in John's mind when he wrote the Gospel of John or not? And so, so we have to ask ourselves the question, can we rely on everything else that's written down or not? Now, it's, a, it's a valid question. It's a question that if you're talking to people that are skeptical, it's a question they should be asking. And what I want to tell you this morning is that I want to give the first part of my sermon here to just, like, helping us understand why we can trust the Bible and why we can trust what we hold in our hands The first reason is the brackets themselves. The fact that there's brackets there is a a reflection of multiple things. It's a reflection of like diligent, diligent, diligent study by people that look at what's called, um, I wrote this down, like the bibliographic evidence of the scriptures. It's a result of, like, integrity in their scholarship, and it's a result of some transparency. Like, oh, yeah, this verse, these verses are disputed. But the reality is this, as you look at the biblical text, um, it's like 95.5%, like the secure. Like there's a really, really, really insignificant portion of the biblical text that has any sort of disagreement at all. It's a half of one percentage point. And, and like none of the places that are disputed, and we're going to see this, Lord willing, as, if, as we get into the text later on, none of the places that are disputed actually change any of the, like, doctrines of Christianity at all. And in fact, passages, and like, this is one example, continue just to reinforce it. 
the truth of the scriptures. You know, but not only is it, is it just the, the, that bibliographic study is a really interesting study because the, the textual evidence for the accuracy of the Bible is like so overwhelming, it's not even funny. Um, I've, got some, I've got some evidence here. Uh, and I think you can... Uh, let me see where I'm at in my notes. Yeah, you can, you can, see, this, you can see this scripture. I mean, this, this chart. The chart has a whole bunch of ancient works um, on, on the left, like Tacitus's Annals, Herodotus' History, you know, Sophocles' Plays. And what, what it tells us is when is the earliest manuscript, which that means is how far removed it from the writing is the first copy that we have. And so, for example, like the, the best one, Homer's Iliad is the, is the very best kind of like, besides the Bible, ancient documents, the very last one on the list before it says New Testament in big letters. Homer's Iliad was written in 415 BC. The gap of time before the first copy that we have is 400 years. And there's like 1,900 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad that we have in our hand. But if you look just down below at the New Testament, the New Testament has... Um, 5,856 Greek manuscripts, just Greek. So it has like three times the amount that, that Homer's Iliad has. Um, and, and if you look at all the other languages, from the very beginning, the Christian ch- church has had a, this great history of Bible translation. If you look at all the ancient translations we have, that number goes from almost 6,000 to 24,000 ancient copies of the Bible. And the oldest copy we have is, is the John Ryland Papyrus. It's called, uh, if you're a scholar, it's the P52 Papyrus. And it's a portion of the Gospel of John where, dial, where it records Jesus' dialogue with Pontius Pilate. And it was written, the copy has been dated at 125 AD. The Apostle John died somewhere between 95 and 99 AD. So it was written within... 25 to 30 years, depending on how you do your math and exactly, you know, this is, a little, this is a little bit of like slush in these numbers, right? It's written within 30 years of John's death. Like John likely saw the copy. And, and if you look at the, if you look at just the, and the people that study these, like go back and out of those 24,000 like ancient copies of the text, like our, our, our text is 95.5% without any dispute, 99.5%. Thank you. What did I say? 95? Yeah, no. Um, 99.5% without any dispute. And so what that means is that, yeah, we can with integrity say like, oh yeah, we're not sure about this section of text. But it changes nothing. Because what we do have is so overwhelmingly confirmed in the, in the eyes of even secular scholars that no one would dispute that what we have is what was written if they if they honestly look at the evidence you know not only do we have that that kind of external textual evidence but you have this internal evidence in the bible that that where it shows like um and and i talk about this in our new members class but the internal evidence of the bible is really really amazing and the more i study the bible the more i'm convinced that it's god's word because of how like unified this book is you know if you think about it it was written over a period of 1500 years um moses recording uh uh, the first five books of the Bible for us, and John recording the last one, the book of Revelation. It's a span of about 1,500 years. It was over 40 different authors. Um, they were from three different continents. They were from every walk of life, ranging from like fishermen to scholars to kings. And 
the entire Bible is a single unified story with a centralized message that, that is clear and without like dispute as you study it. And if you think about that, like just the reality of what it takes to see that internal evidence of the scriptures, like if eight of you get together and you're like, hey, let's pick a place where we all want to go to lunch. And here's people over 1,500 years from every walk of life telling the same story that all perfectly fits together. It's, it's, it's an amazing reality. In addition to that, not only is there this bibliographic evidence, not only is the internal evidence, but the church fathers. The church fathers are those people that immediately like, succeeded the apostles. So like when John died, his disciples, and we're going to see two of them mentioned in just a second, Polycarp, you don't need to pull up, yeah, whatever. Um, the church fathers, like in their writings, we have their writings as well. They existed in those first 300 years of the life of the church. Um, and, and these numbers, it's a little bit hard to tell because of the way they quote things. But you can reconstruct almost the entire New Testament out of the writings of the church fathers. And in fact, here's a sampling of four of them. Um, the first one is Ignatius. In 110, so this was... This is, again, uh, what is that? What's the math on that? 15 years after the death of the Apostle John. He refers to six of Paul's epistles in the year 110. Um, Polycarp and Irenaeus, they were both disciples of John. So they knew the Apostle John personally. Um, Polycarp quoted all four Gospels, the Book of Acts and 1 Corinthians by 160. And so, and in, in, who's the other guy I mentioned? Oh, Irenaeus, he quoted Matthew, John, Acts, and 1 Corinthians. I have the wrong date. Do I, have, do I not have Irenaeus on there? Huh. That's a bummer. <laughs> Maybe it's Ignatius and Polycarp that were the, that were the disciples of John. I know it was the, what, an I word. But they, early on, they're referring to, they're referring to uh, the scriptures t- Tatian, I think is how you pronounce his name, in 160, he wrote a harmony of the Gospels in 160. So he, he had access to all four of the Gospels, and then he wrote like this paraphrased harmony where he took all the stories and wove them together. I thought that was just a modern thing, but Tatian did it in 160. So, so what you see is like early, early, early in the life of the church and from the writings of the church fathers, you can reconstruct. Some people say it's all but 12 verses of the New Testament from the writings of the church fathers. But again, those numbers are disputed. But I'll just say you can reconstruct almost all of the New Testament from the writings of these guys as they're quoting the scripture as scripture. So we have this, like, and there is no other ancient work that even comes close. Like I said, Homer is the closest one. Like, um, Plato, like, you know, the philosopher Plato, not the dope, you know. Um, <laughs> this is Creekside, I got to be clear. They're like, <laughs> he was this Greek philosopher, yeah. Uh, we have seven copies of his, of his writings. The closest one is separated by 1,200 years from when it was written. But when you look at these 24,000 copies, like the 6,000 Greek ones and the rest of the ones that are in other languages, like, they all say the same thing. Like, we can have confidence in the pages of Scripture. And in, and in a situation like this one where, again, like, based on the internal evidence of the language of the text and, and the, the knowledge that's in the text and the early citations of these things, scholars would say that this is a story, but it's just inserted in here out of place by some scribe later on because everything was hand-copied. 
you know, back then. And so, and so some scribe was like, man, this is a great story. We've got to work this in somewhere, right? And he put it in there, and unfortunately, and it, it, it ended up in our English Bibles here because when the King James was translated, um, the, the closest text they had to the original was uh, 900 years removed. Um, and so the, the text that they were accessing were downstream of where the scribe put this in. Um, but again, the integrity, there's no cover-up. There's no, like, we're not trying to hide anything. But the scriptures are reliable, and we can trust them. Um, because, and because none of those disputed areas even affect any of the teaching of the church. And not only the, and the, the church fathers who immediately followed there, not only in their quotations do they, re, do they testify to the truth of the scriptures, but they, they testify to the truth of the content of the scriptures as well. Like, they tell the same story, even if they're not directly quoting it. So, if you want more information on that, I can get you more information. But I just wanted to start there, letting us know that, hey, we can still trust the Bible, even though there are these areas where in scholars, out of all those 24,000, like there are some discrepancies. Um, and then we should jump into the text. So my email, like steve at creeksidemac.com. Um, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or want me to f- drum up some more information and send it your way. Um, but but the, the accusation against the scriptures that it's full of corruptions and it's full of that, that like, we, we excluded books, like, out of it, which all the excluded books that people talk about are written hundreds of years after Christ came. Simply not true. Like, the evidence simply does not support that. And so we can have, again, confidence in the pages of Scripture, internal evidence, the, the bibliographic evidence, the writings of the church fathers. It all points to the same truth. So I hope that was helpful. Some of the looks in your faces are like, man, I'm more confused now than I was before. <laughs> so I hope that's not true. Maybe some of you are just stuck in the whole Plato thing. Um, I don't know. One time I did that. I saw I was preaching, and there was this guy mad-dogging me during the sermon. And I was like, man, what did I say? And then I went and talked to him afterwards. I'm like, hey, like, did I say something to offend you? And he's like, and he couldn't even remember what I was talking about. And then he said, you know, I think I was wondering if I left my coffee pot on at home. So maybe I'm misinterpreting the thing, but feel free to write me if you have any questions about that. But what I want to do is I want to I talk about the text because this is a beautiful text that shows Jesus' like, heart for, for people. And it shows like, the, how the gospel like, transforms everything in our interactions with each other. And it's, it's a beloved story. And I can understand why some scribe would want to make sure it got, got in there somewhere. And so why don't you stand with me? I'm going to go ahead and read um, John chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And I think I'll just stop at verse 6. And uh, then I'll pray and we'll get into the text. It says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in In the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And and they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for preserving it for us. I thank you for the scholars that diligently study it and and do the hard work of making sure what we have is accurate. And um, Father, I just ask that you would transform us from, from the time that we spend this morning as we reflect on the beauty of your son. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You know, as we get into our text, it really breaks out into, into three sections. I've entitled the sermon, I think the title had been thrown up there before, but uh, it's entrapment and mercy. Like the, the, we saw that, that the, the Pharisees were trying to tra- entrap Jesus, and our text is going to break out in three ways. That the trap is laid in verses 1 through 6. The tables turn in verses 7 through 9. It's hard to outsmart out, Jesus. And then mercy is given in verses 10 and 11. And as we look at this story, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. You know, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's teaching in the temple. And suddenly his teaching's interrupted because like the, the, the Pharisees and scribes, it says, and we've seen the Pharisees before. They're kind of like the long-term enemies of Jesus. They're the ones that are like nitpickers about every little detail of the law. They, they show up on the scene dragging with them I'm sure she's not coming willingly. This woman who is caught in adultery. In fact, we read that she was caught in the very act of adultery. Like, think about this for a second. Like, this is horrible. This is this horrible scene that should just, like, make us cringe. Because as, as in, it, in the temple of God, as Jesus is teaching the people, these kind of religious, this religious party of, like, like nitpicking law guys drag this woman who's, I'm sure, weeping. I'm sure she's, like, just, like, overwhelmed with shame. Right? She's dragged out of the house, dragged to the temple, like, thrown in front of, like, this teacher of the day and all of these people. And then the Pharisees start talking about stoning her to death. And this is a, like, treacherous and horrible, like, moment for this woman. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. She's brought before Jesus. And, and you can see the, the treachery of the Pharisees in it because, you know, as they stand smugly by, putting her out there and using her shame to try to, like, gain their position, you know, they ask the question, how does it read exactly? Verse 4, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, of, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? So here's this moment where, where they bring this woman there and, and they quote, uh, there, there's actually a couple places in the law where they're right. Like the law does say you should stone the adulterers, right? It's Leviticus 20 verse 10 or something like that. It's really, really clear in the law. And they're trying to entrap Jesus. Now, let me just pause for a second. The fact that they're trying to entrap Jesus in this way tells us something about Jesus. Because they're assuming Jesus is going to do what? Jesus is going to demonstrate mercy and grace and compassion to her. And that they'll be able to entrap him as a lawbreaker. So somehow Jesus the perfect keeper of the law, the one who is the perfect expression of the law, the one who inspired the law, keeps the law in a way that the Pharisees just can't understand. He keeps the law in a way where they're assuming that he's going to be like somehow showing her mercy. And they just don't, and they just don't get it. They just can't understand. For them, the law is this like tool to like judge people and convict people and elevate themselves and Jesus just handles it differently and they think they're going to entrap him you know there's all this you know and, and if 
And the treachery is, is also pretty clear and pretty evident, even before John tells us about it, because I think it was the same in Jesus' day as it is today. But to commit adultery, which means that you're sleeping with someone besides your husband, in her case, takes two, right? Like, I think that happened back then the same way it happens today. <laughs> Jesus was a single guy. Maybe they thought they could pull that over on him. But it takes two, and yet, standing before Jesus, when these, this man and this woman were caught in the middle of this act of adultery, they only brought one. Now, that raises, like, a ton of questions that John doesn't indulge for us. But it does give us the hint, like, oh, not everything is as it appears, Right? This isn't like an, an honest inquiry into the law. This isn't an honest, like trying to figure out what to do with this woman. In fact, if we missed it from, from like that hint, John tells us this in verse 6. And they were saying this, testing him in order that they may have grounds for accusing him. This whole thing is just a setup and treachery. And they're using this woman's shame to try to entrap Jesus so that they can secure their position in the eyes of the people. It's a terrible thing. Now, before we move on into the, to, the, to the rest of it, I, I want to like focus on their accusation a little bit, because their, their use of the scriptures, the Pharisees' use of the scriptures, is, is often how like, opponents to like, the cause of Christ and opponents of the scriptures use the scriptures today. Because it's a really, like, tense situation where you've got this woman who's, like, in, like, shame and grief and the law is, like, crushing down upon her. And, and the law says in Leviticus 20 that you, should, like, that you should stone her. And, and they're trying to entrap Jesus, thinking, like, oh, Jesus is full of grace and he's full of mercy. And so we're going to stick him with this law that is not grace and mercy. I hear this accusation all the time. Like in stuff I read in conversations. Like, how can you believe the Bible because the Bible has things like Leviticus 20 in it? Right? Are we really supposed to stone adulterers? Anybody ever hear an argument like that? Or you teach grace and mercy and forgiveness, and yet the law says to, to condemn this person to death. You're a hypocrite. Right? You guys hear those accusations? That's the same bind that they're trying to put Jesus in. Here's, this, here's Jesus, this guy that demonstrates grace and mercy and this heart, the heart of God and love for all people. We've got him trapped now because the law contradicts that. Now, let me just, I, I, this is going to be like a little another detour here, kind of educationally. Those questions arise out of, a, out of like a, a deficient view of the law in the Old Testament. The law in the Old Testament really breaks out in three kinds of ways. The first, the first type of law that we have is, is the moral law. The moral law was given to, like, Adam and Eve from the very beginning. It, it reflects God's heart, like, God's character, and it reflects his heart for humanity and, and what he's created for humanity to flourish. And because of that, because it's a reflection of his character and what it is for humanity to flourish, um, it is binding for all people and all times. And it's kind of, it's best encapsulated in, like, the Ten Commandments. Right? You have the Ten Commandments, and the first four of those like, tell us about our duty towards, towards God himself. The last six talk about our duty towards other people. That's the moral law of God, which is binding upon all peoples at all times. 
There's a second kind of law in the Old Testament. It's the ceremonial law. It's, you know, it's when you begin to read through some of the scriptures and you're like, man, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And then you get into this thing and you're like, man, how many times do I have to hear about like, like this incense and that bull and this cow and killing this thing and doing like anybody ever gotten bogged down there? Right? Like, really? Well, there's the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law, all of those sacrifices, all of those things were meant to point us to Jesus. The moral law reveals to us our need for Jesus. The ceremonial law in the Old Testament would point us to Jesus, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's the one that satisfies the Lord. He's the, he's the temple of God where, where God dwells. He's the, I mean, we've seen that even in John where Jesus teaches, where, yeah, Jesus teaches us those things. There's the moral law. There's the ceremonial law. And then this law that the Pharisees are trying to apply here is the judicial law. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was a, a nation state. And as a nation state, it had laws that governed like justice and all of those things that any nation needs to have to, to, to uh, provide for like safety and like flourishing of people within it. Like you need laws to, for society to function. And there are some laws in the Old Testament that are judicial laws and that at the end, at the, as the nation of Israel kind of ran its course and, and has come to an end, like in the, don't, don't read too much into that theologically, but those laws applied to the, the, the nation of Israel as a nation. They were never meant to be an application of my, my own moral responsibility. They were national laws, and as national laws, there's all sorts of intricacies into those laws that you need to, like, focus on. But, but there's the judicial laws, there's the ceremonial laws, and then there's the moral laws. Jesus continues to affirm the moral laws. We'll see later on in the sermon, the, like, the, the New Testament affirms those moral laws, even as they bring an end to those other two laws. Like, now that Jesus has come, the ceremonial law doesn't matter. Now that the nation of Israel isn't, like, this nation state like it was in the Old Testament, um, those judicial laws don't affect, like, don't come into play either. Now, as I'm saying that, I don't want you to think that this is some sort of, like, like shell game um, to, uh, to like, uh, like, somehow weasel out of, like, the modern objection to the Bible, right? Like, it could easily come across that way. But this has been the teaching of the church for hundreds of years. Um, probably the, and I didn't have time to research this all this week, but the Westminster Confession, which was in 1646, which was kind of defined like the whole Presbyterian sort of like uh, denomination. The Westminster Confession, chapter 19, is all about the law of God. And points 1, 2, 3, and 4, and I don't have them up there because it's written in 1646. I would have to spend way too much time explaining them. Points 1 and 2 speak about the moral law and how the moral law continues to be binding. Point 3 speaks about the ceremonial law and how the ceremonial law is meant to point us to Christ. Point number four um, speaks about the judicial law and how the judicial law governs the nation of Israel. Like, and they, they encapsulated it in the Westminster Confession because that had been the teaching of the church to, like, way before it. These were the things that they could all agree on. All I have to say is that if, when you come to the Old Testament, and if people come to the Old Testament and just randomly bring laws out and, and, and take the moral law and, and expect it to have, or take the judicial law, for example, and expect it to have the same authority that the moral law has, they're misusing the scriptures because the judicial law was meant for the people of Israel as a nation state. It wasn't meant to like function for us like the moral law does. So there, there's those three breakdowns. If you want to read more, like the Westminster Confession, there's different versions of it. There's like the original versions, which are like 1646 language, 
don't read that one. Um, it's confusing. Unless you're like a King James guy, then you're well in line. Um, but there's modern versions, like the Christian Reformed Church. They, they have a modern version of it, I think, on their website. I think so. Or Westminster Seminary, I think, has a modern version of it with the language updated. But it lays out those three uses of laws and also has scriptures that go along with them. But the Pharisees here are trying to entrap Jesus using this judicial law and putting him in this moral quandary of what are we going to do with this woman who we caught in adultery. And what Jesus shows us is that he's the master of the law. You can't outsmart the guy who, who wrote it and who modeled it. And he turns the tables on him. This is our second point this morning. The tables turn, starting at verse 7. Well, so in verse Sorry, in verse 6. So what he does is after he... Yeah, I never even finished it. Yeah, verse 5. What then do you say? And, and they were saying this, testing him. But what Jesus does is he just ignores them. He bends down and starts writing with his finger on the ground. And he's just ignoring them. He's like, I'm not going to take your bait. Like, whatever. And they think they probably have him on the ropes, right? Verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him... He straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the midst. So what Jesus does is really interesting, and it's easy to miss, but uh, in verse 7, when he says that he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. Like, he knows their treachery. And he actually quotes from the law himself. The law required in capital offenses that the witnesses against the, against the, the person would be the first to throw a stone. I have this on here. It's, it's in Deuteronomy 17, 7. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. It's actually a pretty great law. Like, if, if you're going to testify against someone on a capital offense, you're going to have to be the one that helps execute the judgment. In fact, you're going to be the primary one to execute the judgment on them. So what Jesus does is he says, you know what? Let me, let me know who the witnesses are. The ones that are supposed to be the first stone, throw the first stone. And if you're without sin, like if, you're, if, you're, if your motives in this whole situation with this woman are completely clean, if, if you weren't like setting her up, if, you were, if, if your heart towards, this, towards her and towards this whole situation is in the right place, yeah, go ahead, pick up a stone. And then he bends down and starts writing again. I don't know what the woman thinks at this point in time, like, right? What Jesus is doing is he's calling out the witnesses. You people who only brought me one, where are you? And they feel the gravitas. They feel the gravity of that, that like, oh, maybe my motives aren't so pure. Maybe I was just being treacherous. Maybe I was like misapplying the law and twisting it around for my own gain. And what do we see happen, beginning with the oldest ones who, there is something good about age is it helps you be a little bit like more realistic about who yourself is, about yourself. They begin to like file out one by one until it's just Jesus and the woman, which is really, really interesting to me. It wasn't just the Pharisees that filed out. It was everybody. Like he cleared out the room. I mean, the people that were just there because they were at church and they wanted to like hear Jesus teach. 
all of them left. You know, it says something about like, like the state of our own heart, what Jesus is saying, like, you better be careful before you pronounce, pronounce like judgment upon somebody that your, your desires and your motives and your heart towards them are in the right place. Maybe the crowd, like, think about this. This, this is the perfect clickbait thing that would be all over the internet. Woman caught in adultery, Jesus entrapped, right? Like, in the very act. It's sensationalized. It's everything that you would think. And so the crowd was probably, like, waiting for this, right? And the, and the conviction fell upon the Pharisees. It fell upon the crowd. And eventually Jesus is left alone with this woman. You know, in his statement, like, let him who is without sin throw the first stone, he's not saying that you can never call sin, sin. He's not saying that you never have to stand up for what's true and even rebuke people who are, like, going down the wrong way. But what he is saying is that when we do it, like, we need to make sure our motives and our hearts are in the right place. In fact, Zechariah, the Pharisees should have read ahead to Zechariah. Zechariah 7, verse 9 says this, Thus says the Lord, thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice. Like God is a God of justice. Like, and, and he's the one that can exp- dispense true justice. Our justice is always like tainted. But he says, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion. Like the, the, way, the, the way we're to use the law, like Jesus, like Zechariah is saying, and what Jesus modeled for us is, is this way that's controlled by kindness and compassion. The Pharisees, it was all about treachery and position. Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. If you want to use the law, don't use it to like further your end to devise evil against another. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They lacked compassion. They lacked um, kindness. They They had distorted justice. And they devised evil plans against Jesus and this woman. Scriptures would tell us, like, no, dispense true justice, practice kindness and compassion. You know, as God's people, we need to be the same way. Like, yeah, there's right, there's wrong, there's sin. But is our heart, like, directed by kindness and compassion towards the person that that we're thinking of? Or is it like judgment and condemnation? The gospel would compel us to be like people of kindness and compassion that that point us to Jesus. That was the purpose of the moral law, was to expose our need for Jesus and bring us to him. And if we just use the moral law to like beat people down, we're no different than the Pharisees. Practice kindness and compassion. So after the room clears out, we see Jesus give mercy to her in verses 10 and 11. It says, in straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on. Sin no more. And it is such a beautiful, this is such a beautiful scene if you think about it. This, ironically, this woman who was brought like in condemnation and shame before Jesus, like, overwhelming shame can can anything get more shameful than that probably not probably but i don't know pretty bad though 
overwhelming shame upon her. And at Jesus' words, the room, the, the, the voices of her condemners like clear out. And he says, like, where'd they go? He says, neither do I condemn you. Like there's this huge reversal of the of her shame, where her shame and her condemnation is taken away by Jesus. And ironically, the safest place for her to be brought by the Pharisees was before Jesus. As she was dragged there in her shame and in her condemnation, because Jesus is one who is compassionate and practices kindness and dispenses true justice and bore that justice on himself so he could set her free. In fact, Jesus is doing here exactly what he said to Nicodemus, who was a ruler, like a religious leader of the Jews back in John chapter 3. This first verse might be familiar for you, to, to you. John three sixteen. Are you guys familiar with that one? Can I ask, is there, like, does everybody know John three sixteen still? Like, it feels like that used to be the thing. Anybody? How do I ask this question? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> it's a little... Random Steve moment, just forgive me for that. But For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Next verse, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says, like what, what Jesus is saying is that his whole mission in the world is not to bring condemnation and judgment. It's to save people. But that doesn't mean there will never be condemnation and judgment coming, or else if there wasn't, there was nothing to be saved from. In fact, Jesus came into the world to do what? We've seen this over and over in John, to be lifted up for his hour to come where he would be crucified for the sins of humanity. He would bear all of God's disfavor upon him. He would bear all of the shame that all of the sin for all of humanity, for all time, incurred upon himself. He would die under the weight of that, and he would be resurrected three days later. That's what Jesus came to do. So the son being sent in the world to not judge the world, but to set them free, doesn't do away with the sinfulness of sin. In fact, it elevates the sinfulness of sin. It says the only way that we could be saved is through God himself dying in our place. But it also like elevates like the grace and the compassion and the mercy that comes because it's whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus is modeling that this to this woman. This woman is caught red-handed. She's caught in the very act. And Jesus declares to her that he had the authority to judge, he had the authority to forgive, and he grants her mercy. He's picturing for her what he would do on the cross. That he would make it possible that our shame could be completely taken away. You know what that means for you? If you're just here and you're investigating who Jesus is or you don't even like Christianity and you're just here because someone made you come or whatever. Know this, that the weight of the stuff of this world, like the, the sin that lives within your heart, the, the, the sin that kind of just oppresses you from the outside, like all of those things that just bring shame and condemnation. And God doesn't want you to live in that. Like look what he says to the woman. Verse 11, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. 
just be released from that. Leave like away and don't sin anymore. You can be set free. Let go. God doesn't want you to sit under the condemning weight of all of that stuff that you might struggle with. He wants to bring life and forgiveness and healing and grant you mercy. And he paid for that with the sacrifice of himself. What does it say? So whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. But Jesus is modeling something here to us as our Lord, too. The kind of people that we should be. We have this contrast between the mercy that Jesus shows and the condemnation that the Pharisees shows. And, and it, it's really compelling that as God's people, we need to live differently than, than the world around us. And to, turn with me to James chapter 2. And I'm not going to put this up on the screen because I want you to go in your own Bibles. I want you to know where this is. I want you to feel it in your hands. I want you to see it. Do you have a phone? Like, phone over to it. James chapter 2, verse 8. James is speaking to us, and I should turn there myself. So I don't have it on the screen. Um, James chapter 2, verse 8. He's talking to the church, and he says this. He says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. He's telling you the church, and he says, there's two things. This is the royal law. This is the law that has come down to us from our king. And it's also recorded for us in the scriptures. In fact, when, when a scribe asked Jesus, hey, like, hey, what's the greatest commandment? You know, Jesus asked the guy and confirmed what he said, like, oh, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, yeah, that wraps it all up. And James is telling the church, he's like, if you do that, you're doing pretty well. If you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That neighbor means that the people sitting in this room with you are your neighbors. But when Jesus was talking to you like somebody, and he, it, this is that guy, and he applied that on him, the guy, it actually says in the biblical text, uh, what is it, Luke chapter, I don't know, I should have had this, but I wasn't planning on going here. You can look it up later. The guy responds to Jesus and it says, and seeking to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? It's an interesting question. When this when this law from our king comes down to us, our neighbor as himself, the guy immediately wants to know who he can exclude from that law. Right? Oh, like I understand that the Creekside folks are my neighbor, as difficult that is. But is my neighbor really my neighbor? Okay, you see the humor of that, right? Is those people I work with really my neighbor? Yeah. And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, the oppressed guy that, like, showed love to the guy that hated him. He's like, oh, yeah, you got to love your neighbor as yourself, regardless of their political views, regardless of their, like, sexual views, regardless of their religious views, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their, like, whatever else we all divide over. You should love them as yourself. Then he goes on. Let me skip down. Well, I'll skip this, but you can look at it there. He, he then talks about... Um, Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So what he's saying there is like, if you're going to like, like look down on other people as lawbreakers, just make sure you've never broken the law ever once in your, in your whole life. 
Because if you break it one time, you're guilty of the whole thing. Really? Yeah, if you've ever coveted something, when you just want something you didn't have, you're a lawbreaker. If you've ever lusted, nobody here struggles with that. Like, you're a lawbreaker. If you ever were disrespectful to your parents, you're a lawbreaker. Like, the law condemns. But then he goes on. This is what he says. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are be judged by the law of liberty. And the, that idea of the law of liberty is that the, the scripture set us free to like walk in that path that, that God has designed for us to flourish as people and, and to experience his life. Like the law is not, the moral law of God is not this oppressive thing. It's the guide to like what, like how we're supposed to live to experience the life God intended for us. And then he says this, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word actually means to like boast or to taunt. Like mercy taunts judgment. Like there's this idea that like our Christian ethic and what Jesus demonstrated to this woman is the Pharisees came in judgment. Jesus came in mercy and he triumphed and he won the day. And what James is telling us, as those who are going to be judged like by the law of liberty, the ones that were condemned and yet set free, we should show mercy to other people. We should be merciful because it's the unmerciful person that, that probably demonstrates that they've never received mercy. Or at least they don't understand the mercy that they received. Skip over to chapter 3, verse 13. Because this is, you know, you know, when you see Jesus outsmart the Pharisees in, in John 8, and you see him use the law to, like, bring, to bring conviction upon them and to, like, like release the woman from, from the condemnation that she was under. It's the wisdom of God. And as God's people, we're called to walk in that same wisdom. And listen to how James describes, like, wisdom from above. He's, he's translating wisdom from above, the kind of wisdom that comes from God, with wisdom from below, the kind of, like, wisdom that comes from, like, well, he, he calls it demonic, the pit of hell, and this earth himself. Look what he says, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Some of your translations read the meekness of wisdom. Like, first of all, like, wisdom from above is something that comes gently. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Isn't that where the Pharisees were? They knew the Bible. They were using the Bible, but they were motivated out of jealousy and ambition. This wisdom is not what comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in everything. Now listen, verse 17, these are the kind of people that we should be. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. You hear that? And how much does the world today need to see wisdom that's peaceable? That tries to cross the boundaries that we like, use to divide people. That tries to bring unity where there's division. Wisdom from above is pure. It's peaceable. It's, I lost my spot. It's gentle. It's reasonable. The word means literally to, to be like quickly persuaded by the evidence. 
man, our, our culture needs to hear that today. Because how often do, like, we, we're just motivated and convinced by, the, by our outrage. Right? We, we feel deeply about something. Something's deeply wrong, so we're just going to outrage, and we don't care about the facts. It's craziness. It's demonic is what the scriptures tell us. That, that, that comes from below. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then like reasonable, then gentle, full of mercy. Full of mercy. Which means if you get bumped, what spills out? Mercy. And good fruits, like the, the fruit of our lives as Christians, if we're walking in the footsteps of Jesus that he demonstrated to this woman, should be pure and peaceable and gentle and full of and reasonable and full of mercy and bear good fruit. Like the people that we impact with our speech and our wisdom in our life should be demonstrating like good fruit in their life. But if what we're like doing and what we're saying is like yielding bad fruit, like we should feel some conviction about that. And then he says, and the seed who's, oh yeah, it's, it's unwavering. Like you stay, you stay with it even when it's difficult. It's without hypocrisy. Verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Like our goal as Christians and, the, and what we do and what we say and how we be, conduct ourselves should be to like see people like be at peace ultimately with God. But we should be agents of peace with each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those are all things Jesus tells us over and over and over again. And yet, in our age today, and it's not our age's fault. Let me just be clear about this. The reason why James is talking about this in James chapter 3, 4, 3, where am I, 3, is because it was a problem, right? He's not just making up stuff to talk about. He's addressing real-life problems. The problem isn't everything outside of us. The problem is those things that live within us. We have, like, this desire for, like, the deeds of the flesh are anger, wrath, malice, slander, gossip. I can't remember the rest. And things like these, Paul says. It's not an exhaustive list. That lives within us, and in the, until we allow the, like, work of the gospel and spirit of God to transform our heart and mind, like, we just continue to be stuck in those things. And our culture today with the polarization and all the stuff that comes up, it just lets what's in us run free. It's not the problem. It just allows it to be seen for what it is. But God's wisdom, what he calls us to as his people, is first pure and peaceable and gentle and full of mercy, reasonable, I think, full of mercy, good fruits, and unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Mark, why don't you come up to close us? And, but I, I just want to challenge us. Like, first of all, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, know that there is life and freedom in him. And to the degree that we as God's people have failed to demonstrate the same kind of mercy and grace and compassion and kindness that, that you saw him demonstrate to this woman, that you see him calling us to as his people, like, forgive us for that and, and look to Jesus. He's the only one that's going to perfectly model it for you. And for all of us who are here who are Christians, let me just challenge you. Like, 
put your put your mind to these things in James chapter three. Like embrace godly wisdom. Like focus on Jesus and follow him because the law from our king is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That wisdom just encapsulates what that would look like. Because we just need to be different. And we should be different because of the mercy we received. So Marv, why don't you close us, then I'll close us in prayer. For your love for us, I thank you that it is so great that it was all written down for us. It would, the whole earth itself couldn't contain what you've done for us. And, and Father, I just pray that you would give us a little glimpse of that mercy and that grace and that love that we've been able to drink from so that we would in turn like offer that freely to those around us. Help us not to be caught up in the spirit of our age, caught up in the wisdom of this world and, and wrapped up in those things that that don't sow peace and make peace, but help us to be um, agents of yours who, who are quick to show compassion and kindness and mercy and, and are full of um, peace and seek to make peace. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.